Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I think we've done a pretty good job now of transitioning over to me getting emails from you guys with questions, and I've been getting them into the queue and trying to pull some older stuff from the queue as well and keeping up with... Uh, we're not not keeping up, but trying to at least get to um, the questions that people send me as uh, as soon as I can. Uh, it's, uh, it's anyway, it's <laughs> my first world problems. Um, hey, part two of my series with John Atack on his ex- entire Scientology experience is now up. Uh, as a podcast, posted it yesterday. We will be continuing this series probably every other week. We will be doing a, a, a next, the next installment of his story, so to speak. But I didn't want to put everything on hold for that. I have other content, other interviews and things I want to get to you guys um, that are already in the can. I just, you just got to get them out. So, um, so that's happening. Anyway, and, uh, and lots of research and development and other things happening too. So uh, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. We got some big juicy ones this week. Anonymous. Where on earth does all the money go? Scientologists worldwide spend vast fortunes to move up the bridge, donate to the International Association of Scientologists, and support supposed humanitarian efforts. These so-called donations, often made under duress, leave some people in financial ruin. Where does it go? Where did it go when Hubbard was alive? It has been claimed that Hubbard donated most of his money upon passing, er, going exterior, And although Miscavige does appear to be living the high life, there must be more money out there. Something doesn't add up. Who benefits? And Bob. My question today is something I've wondered about for quite some time regarding Miscavige. It seems he has lived most of his life inside the walls, quote-unquote, of the group. And I'm curious on your thoughts regarding how in touch or out of touch he really is with the real world. Is his worldview so limited and narrow it impacts his ability to function in normal society? Does he ever truly have interactions in the outside world? Any friends or associates outside the bubble, other than attorneys and investigators essentially under his employ? Could his extremely narrow worldview and limited education so limit his vision he has become, well, just plain nuts? Thanks in advance for your insights. Perhaps others with inside knowledge could chime in via comments. Okay, so I put these two questions together because the answer is related uh, to both with both of these. You asked about money and you asked about Miscavige uh, and his, you know, headspace and, and lifestyle. Now, obviously, I am only privy to so much information about David Miscavige's current whereabouts or activities. So everything I'm going to say about this is almost pure conjecture based on knowledge I do have, experience I've had, etc. Okay, I just want to put all that out there because, you know, I'm getting asked some really high quality questions and you guys are, are really keeping up and are looking in, you know, and the way you, that some of these questions are worded, it's very clear you guys are paying a lot of attention and that is cool. That is, that is really cool. Um, so let's, let's talk about this for a little bit. Now, money-wise, you know, there is zero transparency with the Church of Scientology and its assets and reserves and money, except for these um, uh, IRS filings that are called 990Ts, where they, I believe that is where they have um, uh, put money into or earned money from um, uh, hard stock materials, you know, and things like that. 
Uh, I don't really pretend to understand how 990Ts work or how tax, you know, brackets work or how tax income works or any of that stuff. I don't, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I understand any of that stuff because I don't. I'm not an accountant and I'm not pretending to be. Um, I just know that this is how much the Church of Scientology has to report or be transparent about versus the whole big financial picture of what they have available to them and where they put that money. This is a direct consequence of the tax codes of the 501c3 specifically, which is nonprofit status for churches, religious, religious tax exempt organizations. None of them have to have any obligation to provide any transparency about their finances. And this, I think, op obviously opens the door to potential criminal behavior and abuse. And human beings, being who they are, they are going to walk right through those doors as fast as they possibly can. Uh, not everybody, of course. I'm not trying to say that everybody is a horrible, awful person. But, you know, there's enough who get close to these kind of things. And things to happen, right? So in the case of Scientology, you have millions and millions of dollars coming into this organization on a yearly basis through the whales, the IAS donations, the building fund donations, as well as service sales. Um, they make profit off of that and um, material sales, which they have to reinvest back in to bake the books, make the CDs, stuff like that. But I'll tell you, they've got so much in stock already. I mean, they've got a football field size warehouse that hold, that is just dedicated to holding the materials, the CDs they've printed, the books they've printed. They're all there, right? Um, new materials they haven't even released yet are probably sitting there. So, so they've got a lot of stuff in stock too. So all that, so you know, a little bit of money goes into that. Almost no overhead as far as healthcare benefits, paying their employees. Like none of that exists. They're all religious volunteers who get paid a pittance. So where does the money go? Well, it could be going to any of a hundred different places. Um, to get to David Miscavige's part of this, he, of course, is the one who's calling all the shots. All of them. There isn't anybody else in Scientology who's making major financial decisions. It is him. And um, there are investments, right? They invest in things. We know that churches are able to invest in things. And when they do, they don't have to report any part of it at all. So that kind of sucks. Um, but that means that they can invest in businesses, strip malls, um, you know, profit returning things, right? They're investments. They want, they want a return on that investment. So, um, so all kinds of money can be going to that. Money goes also, not a small amount of money, also goes to the Church of Spiritual Technology, or at least it has in the past, which is the Archives Project, which is preserving all of L. Ron Hubbard's words and and lectures in those underground vaults. If you don't know anything about that, check out my podcast with Dylan Gill. We've done a couple things, a uh, couple interviews talking all about that. Um, that's millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars going into that alone. So um, then they have to spend certain amounts of money in certain places in order to show, if asked by the IRS, that they are reinvesting some of their funds back in church operations. So you get the IAS buying a building in Taiwan, or you get, you know, a, the latest ideal org is purchased outright by the Church of Scientology International rather than having to do the local fundraising or something, right? That was how they did Harlem. That's how they did Inglewood and a few other places. So, um, so, they, so they do throw some money back into their operations. You also have the studio 
that not Golden Era Productions at the Int base, but the whole Scientology Media Production Studio, which is, I guess, about a mile or two away from Big Blue Base in Los Angeles. That's a multi-million dollar facility that they, you know, spent some money on. Um, now, getting to David Miscavige personally, of course, you're going to have him as a, you know, he's in the rarefied air of the 1%. He is a person who has risen to a position where he is never, ever going to need or want anything, uh, want for anything, I should say, for the rest of his life. He's, he is secured. He's got everything figured out. You know, when it's his birthday, money comes up to him from the Sea Org, even. These people who are getting a pittance of anything, 50 bucks a week, um, I think 100 at Flag. That's, they're sending birthday money up, right? And uh, that's just donations to him. Christmas presents as well. Like he, he has these, these ways of being able to get money to himself and through bonuses and commissions, he can pay himself pretty much anything he wants to. And he's sort of able to bypass the whole enormous thing through those kind of the lever pulling. Uh, he also has invested money in the best not not highest tier, I mean the best tax attorneys that money can buy. And of course, legal defenses. He's, you know, they are not shy or skimpy on spending as much as they need to, to have all the legal protection they need and use whatever maneuvering or avenues of legal defenses they, they need to use. You know, they're, they're just ruthlessly efficient about that sort of thing. And when you park your moral compass at the door, then you get to think that way and operate that way and hire lawyers who think and operate that way. And that's where they do. So that's not cheap. Those lawyers don't come cheap. And Scientology spends millions upon millions of dollars on their legal bills, on legal defense. This is lawyers. This is private investigators. This is research on, you know, opposition research. Um, you know, and then there are, you know, whatever PR ventures they're involved in. Now there's also the underhanded stuff, right? There is greasing palms of government officials or law enforcement officials. And yes, that absolutely happens. Um, then, oh gosh, then there's Miscavige himself, who lives in a, a very cloistered lifestyle. He is, um, more than a celebrity or more even than a 1% CEO, he, you know, a 1% or 2% or CEO type person, he, he definitely has set up. I mean, if you just think in, in terms of common sense, like, okay, well, if I was in his position or if anybody with two gray cells to rub together was in his position, what would they do? Well, clearly he has a plan B, C, D, and E all set for escaping if, some, if something were to happen. I imagine that he's got things set up where he could be on a plane within, well, you know, I was talking to a friend and, you know, we were thinking a half hour, he could probably be on a plane and be off to, you know, whatever country not, which that does not have extradition treaties with the United States, and there are such countries. Uh, he's probably already got estates and stuff set up there. I mean, this is this is where this guy is at, right? He lives in a at a level of, of preparedness and paranoia that that few of us could even really com comprehend. You know, uh, he's dreadfully afraid of being assassinated. He is dreadfully afraid of of body thetans leaping onto him from children. Apparently, I mean, this is a thing. Apparently, he's afraid of, like for real. So, I mean, it sounds like a joke. It sounds ridiculous, but. You know, apparently that's true. So here you have a guy who is, um, 
in a really sad place mentally, right? In that he has demonstrated an avarice, a, a, a need to beat up on people, to, to, uh, to treat people badly, to, to lord his power over them. We already know this from all the testimonials coming out of, you know, from the hole uh, at the base and the fact that he's taken off from there and doesn't even go there anymore indicates that he has now put a lot of distance between himself and that whole thing um, so he can have plausible deniability. And yet he is still stuck with these desires, this, 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 you know, this insatiable need to, um, to be a predatory guy, you know, to be the alpha, so to speak. So, uh, so where does he find an outlet for that now? He's exiled his own wife even, right? I mean, he doesn't have anybody really close to him unless that's Tom Cruise. And after everything I've just described, I mean, what kind of place would Tom Cruise have to be in to hang out with this guy, right? I mean, it starts to, you know, it's not, Tom Cruise not a good guy. So, okay, so um, I imagine that Miscavige is probably now paying for the privilege of abusing people because he can't really trust all the disloyal SPs, the suppressive people who surround him on a daily basis trying to do in Scientology and do him in personally. He can't trust any of them anymore. So now he's got, you know, hired bodyguards and, and a whole, you know, this whole troop of people who follow him around everywhere he goes to, to see to his needs and protect him. And those are all, you know, uh, either loyal Sea Org or the best that money can buy in terms of private security. Uh, okay, so that's his lifestyle. So it's a, it's, it's sort of like he, he has to walk around in this fortress all the time, constantly afraid of everybody and everything around him. And yet he has this need that must be met from these people. Remember I talk about cult leaders being in a codependent relationship with the followers. The followers need the leader, but the leader needs the followers too. And he has to experience that, which is why he has to go out on stage many times a year and, and talk to the, you know, the teeming millions of Scientologists. And that's how he gets his sort of fix, I think, right? That and maybe uh, it's not beyond uh, imagination at all that he might be going to, you know, dungeons and stuff and, and paying for the privilege of beating people up. I mean, stranger things have happened. And worse, much worse things have been revealed about Scientologists and Scientology. So, you know, this is all just conjecture. I'm not saying this is fact at all. I'm just saying could be, you know. Um, you know, what do you, how do you, you know, you ask about, uh, you know, after all of this, has he become just plain nuts? I, I think he always was to a degree, you know, that's what I think. And, uh, and I think Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard specifically made him that way. You know, I think he had a tendency towards violence. He had a, he had the asthma thing too. He had a tendency toward, uh, you know, fairly temperamental kind of disposition, short-tempered, you know, impatient. And Scientology just took an exasp, you know, just blew up all of that. And L. Ron Hubbard fed him with a steady diet of, of you know, indoctrination until he had the realization one day that, he, that power is assumed and he was going to assume it. And he just started taking over, you know, and that was how he got to be in charge. So he is, to that degree, a self-made man, I suppose you could say, from a certain twisted point of view. 
Um, but he's not an, a, capable of independent operation. He needs to have this, this group of people around him that serve him and, and uh, validate him and are yes men to him and, and are, you know, sort of obsequious to him. He has to have that. So, so he's got those levels, you know, built around him. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to go into some of those things because, um, it, like I said, I'll stress again, it is a lot of pure conjecture, uh, educated conjecture, but still that, because we can't know what Scientology is up to with its money. And we really don't have any idea what David Miscavige gets up to these days because he's so cloistered in that nothing ever leaks out. And that's, that's the truth of where things are really at. But I hope my conjecture is useful or, you know, at least mildly entertaining in some fashion. And that's, that's where it's at. James Esposito. We know that agencies such as the FBI have infiltrated organizations in the past. And my question isn't if the FBI should, but if the FBI could. Do you think any law enforcement organization who had the financial means, which would be substantial, could infiltrate Scientology to obtain the necessary evidence to prove some of the criminal accusations that have been made. And if they could, what would be the best place to get in? Okay, people ask me about infiltrating Scientology, spying into Scientology, looking in on them from a law enforcement perspective and, you know, could this, should this, would this be done? Um, yeah, it, you know, it probably has been done in the past. And, but let me, and then we have, of course, Ben and Mike, right, or Angry Gay Pope, or these people who go around filming them all the time, and, you know, how effective is that? Well, you know, Ben and Mike were great for getting some inside footage into the, you know, the, of what really goes on in a church out into the outside world, and all it took were a couple guys walking in with spy glasses. So, not a super, you know, complex, you know, devious plan, right? <laughs> it wasn't particularly necessary that it be deep, deep planning in order to infiltrate and come out with some good information that shows some of the crazy that goes on. But if you really wanted to go all in, if you were serious about this, let's go ahead and talk about it. Here's my ideas on this. Um, and anybody who's listening and law enforcement in particular, please take note because I'm, I'm not kidding about any of this and I do think this would work. I, in fact, I think this is the only way it could work if you really, really wanted to do it. But it would be a time investment because it's going to take time to build trust and rapport with the people in Scientology in order for them to believe that you are who you purport to be. Um, the, you know, Ben and Mike were climbing the ladder so fast, joining the Sea Org, getting, you know, being gung-ho, getting involved so quickly that even the Scientologists, the Sea Org members, they were like, whoa, man, you guys are like unicorns. You're so amazing, right? Yeah, you, you don't want to be doing any of that. If you're going to go in and infiltrate Scientology, you want to go in uh, at, you know, at a slow, steady pace and just look and act like a normal person experiencing Scientology for the first time. And you'd even go in with some cover story about having read some things on the internet, not Xenu, do not ever name drop Xenu, ever, and do not ever claim to any knowledge about advanced OT materials or confidential materials in Scientology, nor will you ever question David Miscavige or L. Ron Hubbard or their legitimacy. You do that, it's going to be alarm bells up one side and down the other, especially now. The church is so tense about, you know, any criticism. They are so sensitive to it um, that they will just immediately red flag anybody who comes in there saying that stuff. And 
Um, so you want to be a model Scientologist, and that means going in as though you don't know anything, starting at the lowest level services, doing a communications class, doing the problems of work, you know, personal efficiency uh, seminar, right, which is like a one or two day deal, and then getting some Dianetics auditing like Ben did, right, and then climbing the ladder. But you know what? You don't have to film any of this stuff because you're not going to run into any criminality, crazy, wild, weird stuff on your first days in. You're, you know, this is like I'm talking about a month or two or three of like just steadily going in a couple times a week, doing your classes, doing your auditing, paying for it, of course, and maybe looking for, you know, a good, good avenues to get up the bridge and that sort of thing, and honestly appearing as though you are doing the procedures and following all the rules. And that you're gradually getting more and more excited, more and more involved in this, right? And at the beginning, it's going to sound and look very, not normal, but it's not going to be like this crazy town where everybody's beating up on each other or anything like that. You're not going to see any of that stuff at the beginning. You're not going to see it for a while. Because what you need to do is you need to gradually get all the way in to where you, where they believe you are a dedicated, paying, full-blown Scientologist. You're all in. You're going to the events. You're happy. You're standing up. You're clapping. You're involved. This could, you know, this should probably be about four or five months investment where you're regularly there. You're showing up. You're expressing uh, satisfaction with the services that you've been receiving. Nothing mind-blowing. Not, oh my God. You know, holy cow, my, you know, red is blue and black is white. No, wow, everything's so different now. Just slow and steady wins the race on this, okay? It's, a, it's an infiltration. So you got to infiltrate and you got to learn the lingo. You know, you can go in knowing all this stuff, but once you start living it, it takes on a whole different meaning and a whole different level of importance and significance. And you're going to start learning about the language and, and how people relate to one another in the world of Scientology. And what you want to do is inch your way towards joining the Sea Org. You're never, ever going to get anything substantial out of Scientology unless you get to the upper levels. And that means joining the Sea Org. Now, again, at this by this point, you're really not ha you don't have to walk around with spy cams and secret record everything. In fact, you don't want to do anything with any of that stuff. You don't want to give them any excuse to kick you out. And like I said, Scientology right now is primed. They are so freaked out. Um, about people infiltrating them or spies or whatever. They always have been, but now more than ever. And, um, and you gotta, you got to take that seriously because they do. They take it very seriously. So anyway, point is gradually go through these services, get up to, you know, I don't know, get up to like through that purification program, through the objectives program. And this is, this is going to be the rough part for the person who's doing it. Because you're going to have to sort of fake it through all this stuff because you do not want to get involved in actually running these processes that they're going to try to run on you in the auditing. That's where the psychological damage and mindfuckery comes from. And you don't want any part of that, right? So you want to you somehow get a person who is actually going to understand what the auditing process is, what hypnotism is, and how to avoid it. Right, while looking like you're playing along and going along with it. And if you understand that the e-meter is just bullshit, and when it responds to something, you can just make up answers. It, once you understand that, then the e-meter, all the mystique and mystery about the e-meter goes away, right? And you can actually, like, 
kind of be in charge of what it's doing to a degree. You can't necessarily sit there and squeeze the cans when you want it to respond because the people who run the e-meters are trained to look for that sort of thing. They, there is a difference between, you know, reactions coming from actual electrical resistance versus squeezing the cans, uh, you know, really obviously, right? Um, yeah, a lot of the reactions on the meter come from micro changes in muscle tissue and micro changes in sweat, uh, but you're not in control of that, right? So as far as the meter goes, you just kind of want to run with it in the sessions and just kind of go with whatever the auditor is sitting there asking you about. It doesn't really matter what your answers are. You know, there aren't answers you're going to give in auditing sessions that are going to get you traction or mileage with Scientologists. They don't care what comes up in your sessions. As long as it's not, you know, present time criminal activity, they, 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 they will take issue with that. But, um, but otherwise, they don't care what the content of your stuff is, as long as you're not going crazy town and talking about how you were L. Ron Hubbard in your last life or something, right? Just keep it normal, mundane, regular people kind of stuff. Climb the ladder, get into the Sea Org. And then the road really starts, because then it's going to be at least a year before you can get up the line to get to the international headquarters or get to the rarefied air of David Miscavige's inner circle. That's more than a year, actually. That's at least a year and a half, two-year investment, right? Uh, because that's you have to have a production record. You have to be in a very, very gung-ho, with it, on purpose, you know, effective Sea Org member getting stuff done. Those are the guys who get moved up the line. Because everybody at the lower levels believes that this is what's wanted up above. They don't know how bad it is at international management. They don't know how bad David Miscavige really is in private. Everybody at this level down here is thinking that he's the bee's knees and everything's wonderful. So if you want to get up there, you got to act like that. And you got to be exceptional in that regard. Um, so you got to be willing to rip into people. You're going to have to be willing to just get shit done no matter what it takes. And, um, and there isn't a fast road to that. You're just going to have to do the work and, and suffer on through getting yelled at and screamed at and all the other nonsense that you're going to have to experience as a Scientology Sea Org member. Right, but if you And that's the point where once you're in, after you've gone through the EPF, the boot camp, right, and you've gotten onto a post and you're producing and you're rolling and you're going, at that point is when you start bringing the spyware and stuff in. Not before that. There's no reason to. You're not trusted yet. You're going to get caught and, and it's going to be bad and you're going to get kicked out and all that time is going to, and money is going to be wasted. So don't even bother starting to record stuff or, or trying to take inventory of what's going on around you until you really move up the line a bit as a Sea Org member. And finally, then, uh, after enough time of this, you and bucking for promotion and pushing for it, because as a Sea Org member, they want gung-ho, originative, I want to move up the line, I want to make this happen. They want that. So if you've created a past track record of being a normal person, and you come in and you do the Scientology and you gradually move up to a more and more fanatical level, then you can be believed, right? If you come in on day one as the unicorn, nobody's going to believe you, right? So you have to, this is why this backstory is so important. And keep in mind, all of this is being documented by Scientology internally. Preclear folder, ethics folder, student folder, they've got all of it. 
They're going to ask you for a life history where you're going to have to list every single sexual partner you've ever had, school you went to, job you held, person you've known. You have to have a detailed background that is not your actual background to that degree. You've got to have it that detailed for them to actually believe you. So, you know, so the backstory and creating all of that and learning all of that, well, if any of you ever saw that scene from um, Reservoir Dogs, uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie, when, um, uh, oh, the actor was, uh, the British actor was learning his backstory for a drug deal, and he was just learning this humorous anecdote that he could tell to lower tensions and get people to believe that he was actually in the drug world. Well, it's going to be that by about a thousand <laughs> is what this undercover person is going to have to know. They're going to have to create an entire backstory and it's going to have to not have anything to do with who they really are. And, um, you know, and then they're going to need to uh, know that backwards and forwards and not mess up on it because it's all going to be very thoroughly documented within the church, right? And finally, when you get to the upper level, you start finally getting promoted and you move on up the line, then you start documenting what's going on. And, um, and of course, we have the technology to do that. So you just, you know, figure that out and get it done. So that's, that's the deal as far as like, if you really want to get into the inner circle and get the true deal on what goes on when the doors are closed and, and no one else is around, that's how you're going to have to do it nobody's going to do that. And that's why I don't think it's ever going to happen. But that's, that's what I believe would be necessary to go in and actually get evidence of what goes on on the inside, on the deep, deep, deep inside. But that's how you could do it. Rose, without getting into any stories, I know what it is like to get out of situations and suddenly feel the freedom to think what I want to form my own opinions, to not walk on eggshells, to not be afraid of reaction to my actions or lack thereof, and to be able to literally breathe without fear of any kind on any level. The freedom of being micromanaged and the feeling of other literally breathing down my neck. A lot of stories people have shared on your show, Leah's show, etc., have talked of not having outside contact or the freedom to just do what they want, when they want, or in some cases, what they can or cannot wear and eat. My question to you is, did you feel that sudden weight lifted and that freedom too when you left? I've been curious about some of your guests and Leah's former guests too. How did you feel once you didn't have to recruit, work, and all things Scientology? Did you feel like you could breathe for the first time? Did you have to unlearn, deprogram, detox in your own way or through professional assistance? To me, it's a level of PTSD that everyone experiences. I'm always curious about how people coped after leaving or escaping their situations. Okay, so it was about seven years ago now, around now, this time of the year, March, that I first started doing my deep dive into what Scientology was all about on the internet after having left the Sea Org. And, um, and it's been quite a journey since then. I've detailed it, you know, in, in, well, in detail here on my channel. Um, how I felt when I first got out of Scientology is I guess the moment that I'm going to mark as that moment is the moment after I got off the phone with the um, senior INR PAC. That was his post title, the Senior Director of Inspections and Reports for the Pacific Base. Uh, I got off the phone with him after he told me that I had been declared a suppressive person. This was around December... 
17th or so um, of 2013. And after I got off that phone call, that was when the monkey was off my back. That was when the gorilla was actually off my back. I felt it. I felt it lift. And it was uh, like a mass, like this dark cloud mass was on me and it, and it left. And if that sounds somewhat akin to Scientology success stories or something, well, that's how I'm, that's the background I'm used to describing uh, these kinds of things with. But that, that was how it felt. And it was a weight. It was a, it literally felt like a weight off my shoulders. Of course it wasn't. I didn't really have this weight on my shoulders, but that's what it felt like. Um, and I knew that I was, that I was, that I had hit a point of no return. There was no going back. I was declared. It was over. I, I had now formally gone through the, the, the you know, the, the, the mill, and I had been uh, labeled, and the Church of Scientology was no longer going to have anything to do with me, uh, at least on any kind of a social level, right, uh, in any sort of like amicable way, and no Scientologist was ever going to talk to me again, and, um, and that was okay, because I mourned the loss of all of those people. I had, I had already started earlier, of course, when I saw the writing on the wall. Um, and that really sucked, but I also um, did not yet know, and what I learned over the coming months as I then started speaking out publicly under my own name, is how many people I had known over the years who had already left too. And that just added to the, ugh, the relief of, you know, reconnecting with people who had been keeping their distance from me or had not even known I was, you know, out of Scientology. And, you know, they'd been keeping their distance until I got out. So, um, so that, was, that was unlooked for. I didn't see that coming at all. Um, and I don't know what other words to use except the ones you've used, you know, freedom, the relief, the, you know, it was, it, it was like a whole new world. Um, and in many, many, many ways, that was actually the point where I hit the reset button on my life. I had, I'd thought I'd hit it a year earlier, right, in leaving the C organization, and in, and in many ways I had, but, but it was really getting free of Scientology. It was 2013 and everything that happened during it that, that really put my life on the course that it's on now. And, um, and I'm very, very happy that that happened. Um, you know, PTSD, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't even know what that was. I had no idea what I was experiencing for the first couple of years. I had so much to learn. And, I, and that was that process of reaching for knowledge and, and knowing that there were things I could know about my situation that could help me and that could help me deal with my situation that, that, that prompted me to, you know, to, to do the deep dives of research that I've been doing and sharing with you guys. Um, that have helped me along with this because it wasn't really a whole lot of counseling. I've only had a you know a couple sessions of, of 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 therapy and it and you know it was okay. Uh, I recommend it for other people for sure, but I couldn't afford it and didn't didn't really avail myself of that. So instead, I have used education as my mainline way of of catharsis, and it's been uh, very very useful and helpful for me. And one that I, it's that that's a route that I push on other people too, because I think it's it's not just getting some relief from some of the you know the the anxiety or the trouble or the strain or the worry and the depression even you know it's it, it's 
you know, you can go talk to somebody and feel better until you don't. And then you got to go talk to somebody again, or you got to have that self-conversation, or you got to work things out, or you got to journal, or you got to do something to, to sort that out. But when you learn things, when you learn about what goes on up, up, up here, or when you learn about what's going on in the whole body, you know, when you learn about all this stuff, um, and you learn about anxiety and stress and trauma and, 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 and psychiatry and all this stuff, then, the, then, then you can sort of, at least for me, I've been able to have self-conversations. I've been able to talk myself through some of this stuff. Not always. It's never a substitute for having another person there to listen to you, that's for sure. Um, but it does make it easier when you, when you have some concept that you can hold on to or grasp and go, okay, this is what's going on. You know, I understand that even though sometimes, you know, people do this, even when the, when the concept or the, or the piece of information they're, they're holding on to isn't even true. I look for true things. I want to believe true things. And I don't want to hold on to fantasies or delusions. So I take great pains to try to verify the truth of the things that I actually believe and uh, accept as true. Um, if I find out that something I've learned or, or think is false or wrong, then I delete it from my social media. If I've shared it, I try to take, you know, make some measure to say, hey, I was wrong about that. I think that is also part of the process, though, for me, and I think it should be for everybody. If I was going to, you know, start projecting on other people what they should be doing, I think the desire to learn and know and believe in true things is very basic, you know, and will keep you out of a lot of trouble because it keeps you challenging your own ideas. And if there's anything that people who come out of cults need to do, it's they need to learn how to challenge their own ideas because it was their ideas that landed them in the hot, you know, in the, the soup in the first place. Uh, you know, yeah, they were conned. Yeah, they were lied to. Yeah, they were deceived. Yeah, they were even physically, sexually abused. And that, I'm, not, I'm not giving anybody a pass for any of that nonsense. That's, that is total horseshit that that had to happen to people. Um, abusers are abusive, you know. But we are vulnerable to abusers when we don't challenge our own thoughts. When we have the idea that, hey, maybe something's wrong here this guy's beating on me or this woman is abusing me, you know, we have the opportunity there if we're not children stuck in that situation. If we're grown-ass adults, we have the ability and capacity to ask ourselves, is this really the best thing I should be doing right now? Is this really true? Is, this, is what I'm doing a sensible thing for me to do? You know, asking yourselves questions like that about everything you're involved in is vital to not getting conned or deceived, you know. So this is where I go back to critical thinking all the time. Anyway, I'm giving, I've thrown out a lot of stuff here, but these are lessons that I've won or learned. They were hard-won lessons, you know. They were things I've had to learn along the way, and I think they were very useful for me in my recovery process, and that's why I share them so actively and energetically with everybody else. Anyway, that um, is kind of what my experience was like. You asked about that and the freedom of it and gaining my freedom back. Um, you know, and also learning in the big wide world, 
you know, what kind of freedoms we should be entitled to. Human rights, civil rights, I mean, learning where these things come from, what they're all about, why we think that they are rights and not privileges. You know, these are things that are very important to learn about so that you don't let people in the future convince you otherwise. And that's a whole other thing. So uh, anyway, so, you know, I, I, I really believe in learning as a, as a big key for that, obviously, if I haven't made that clear already. Uh, and that was what it was like for me to escape that situation and the immediate feelings I had after. And I, I hope that I relayed that somehow in a, <laughs> a sensible way. Eric, at some level in Scientology, there must be a person or group of people responsible for declaring people as SPs, sending out men with cameras to harass people, etc. How many people in this group are fully aware that Scientology is a complete scam? There must be a few quote-unquote masterminds behind all of the shady stuff. What does the church do to stop dissent among this group and those that work under them? Surely the direct underlings can't be made aware of the true reasoning for what they're doing, right? Hey, Eric, thanks for the question. Actually, it's a little bit off on that, and I understand where you're coming from. You think, well, it couldn't be that, true, you know, that, that people could be scammed into this and still be doing such horrible things to other people. They must know what they're doing, right? They must understand that this is about protecting money. This isn't about saving lives or saving souls. But actually, no, that, that's not true. The, the people who, who work in the Office of Special Affairs, which is the area that you're asking specifically about, the, the people who declare suppressive people, that's a guy named Mike Ellis, he's the International Justice Chief, or whoever is filling that role now, and that's the person who is, is, is the final stamp of approval on suppressive person declares. But all the legal shenanigans and stalking and harassment and, and you know, chicanery and private eyes and all that, that's, all of that is the Office of Special Affairs. It is a um, compartmented area or, or sub-organization of the Church of Scientology International. It is directly run by David Miscavige, uh, who th has a middleman as the commanding officer of, of OSA, and, um, and he oversees that area quite heavily. Uh, they do legal, they do private investigate, you know, they do the investigations, and they do PR public relations. And even these three areas are compartmented one to the other away from each other. So there's not full disclosure between departments what's going on or, or who knows what where. This is a very, very closely regulated uh, thing that the, that the commanding officer and his department heads know about. But all of those people are true believers in the Eric Hoffer sense. They are all in on Scientology's belief system. They are not aware of the fact that it is a scam. They don't, they're not making any money. They're Sea Org members who are, you know, slaving away like everybody else. But they are the most fervent, fanatical believers of the Sea Org. You have to want to work in the Office of Special Affairs. You don't just get assigned there randomly because, you know, somebody thought it would be a good idea. You have to want it. And if you don't want it, they're not going to put you there. So you've got people who go there who have some idea of what the Office of Special Affairs is about. And once they start there, if they're going to stay, once they start learning about it, they got to be gung-ho, involved, ready to go, right? They got to go, they, they want to go get those nasty anti-Scientologists and they want to show us what's what. They want to put us in the ground is what they really want to do. And they're more than happy to use any means necessary to create that effect.
Um, and they do so out of a sense of righteousness, out of righteous belief, not out of a sense of those guys are, are, are getting in the way of our money and, they're, and they're, they're revealing the scam. They don't believe Scientology is a scam. They really think that it is the salvation for man and that a small percentage of mankind are absolutely batshit crazy antisocial psychotics who will never respond to efforts at help or therapy. Those are called suppressive people, see? And that's who we are. And once you get that label, we're not human beings anymore. And we can have things done to us that, you know, are pretty awful because we don't matter. We are psychotic. We're antisocial. We're horrible. We are evil and we must be destroyed. That is the attitude of the people who work at the Office of Special Affairs, which is the mindset you have to be in in order to execute the kind of things they do. It's fanaticism, straight up, right? This is extremism 101. So that's who those people are, and they want to be there. They want to be doing that kind of work. I talk about them in terms of shark eyes. They have black eyes. They have these eyes. They don't, you know, there's no emotion registering there. There's no compassion. There's no empathy. These are, the, these are the people who kind of enjoy doing that to other people. And, and the, the Office of Special Affairs gives them plenty of reasons and indoctrination at, to justify or rationalize why they feel like it's a completely rational, sane thing to do to ruin utterly other people's lives, right? They got all kinds of reasons to justify that behavior. Um, so it's not, so, so if you're wondering like, well, you know, th th like there are other motivations than money, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's what you see most clearly expressed by the people who work in the Office of Special Affairs. Mark Pullis, learning how the cult operates and its beliefs help to understand the state of mind the people in it are in. Is there a chance of an overthrow of the current leadership? or the chance that a former paying member is attempting to start a revival of the old Scientology, a new branch of Scientology, so to speak, bigger and more effective than the free zone groups. Oh, Mark, this kind of thing happens all the time. There have been attempted overthrows. There have been uh, people who are out in the free zone or others, not just free zone people, independent Scientologists, or as John Atak and I are, are now uh, more likely to call them dependent Scientologists because they are far from independent of Scientology. Uh, I love that joke. Anyway, um, yeah, these, 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 these things have already happened and they will continue to happen. And I wanted to answer this question to point that out, that, you know, uh, there have been people who have tried to go after Miscavige and have been put down. There have been people who uh, eventually Miscavige will go away in one way or another. Eventually, that's a certainty. And then somebody else is going to have to step up or the whole thing will collapse and we'll see what happens and under what circumstances that happens. But I just wanted to point out that these things have already happened. It's not like that's never occurred before. And there are, there's an independent Scientology church out there that's filed for tax exemption and put its paperwork together and is trying to use the copyrighted term Scientology in their in their title, and they're doing that on purpose to try to legally take on Scientology on that. I don't keep up on it any closer than that, but that's what I know. Um, these things are going to continue to happen, right? There's nothing stopping these things from happening. In fact, as Scientology gets looser and looser with its copyright enforcement, 
uh, they can expect more and more of this. And even if the ch entire Church of Scientology collapsed tomorrow, there's nothing stopping some guy in Hungary or, or uh, Taiwan or Italy or here in the United States from picking up a copy of Dianetics or Scientology, some book, and starting it all over again. It's all there. I mean, the whole organizational structure is laid out there. You know, all the labyrinth of corporations and all the goofy stuff. Well, that could all fall apart and somebody could have to refigure all that stuff out or come up with a whole new angle on putting the Church of Scientology together. But I almost guarantee that sort of thing is going to happen in the future, even if the Church of Scientology, as we now understand it, were to completely collapse. Because Hubbard, you know, these books and lectures, they're all over the world and they are some of the most translated materials that exist. There aren't lots and lots of them, but there doesn't have to be in order for some person somewhere to randomly start up some group and get it going again is all the point I wanted to make. So, you know, these, this is how these things happen. And Scientology has had, by the way, easily over 50, certainly maybe over 100, if not more, uh, splinter groups over the years, over the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, Jesus, so many. People really don't quite get how ripped off Scientology has been. L. Ron Hubbard's ideas were almost all plagiarized, but he too was then plagiarized by Werner Erhard and the whole Land Est Landmark Forum uh, nonsense. That's almost straight Scientology. Yeah, Landmark Forum. I'm not kidding, right? Um, there are so many other MLMs and other groups that are not even religious in nature that use so much Scientology in them. I mean, if you guys, anyway, yeah, it's, it's a lot, okay? Because people saw that Hubbard was making millions and they went, well, I want some of that action. And they figured out how to do it because, you know, the awful truth is it's not hard. It's not hard at all. And that is uh, why we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> anyway, um, just wanted to throw that out there. Whooshity whoosh, it is time for Flash Answers. Michael Yoder, you talked about steak dinner as a wish while in the Sea Org. What was the first thing you treated yourself to after you left? I would imagine that would stick in your mind. Here's what I remember, Michael. I don't remember a meal. I, I've had a lot of steak since I left the Sea Org. I love steak. But here's what I remember as a feeling, as a picture, as an emotion. The, is what, what I treated myself to was freedom. And, and what I remember when I was, the, was, the, was the feeling when I got in the rental car and I drove away from the Pacific base, Big Blue, for the last time. You know, like when I left, I was out of the Sea Org. And that was a relief that is hard to describe. I, I, I described my other relief at being declared and getting out of Scientology earlier in this episode. This was similar, but not quite the same level because I still had the Scientology belief system and, the, and the, the, all the PTSD stuff was all just fresh. I mean, it was fresh, fresh, fresh. So, um, so all that still had to be dealt with. So I was experiencing a relief 
at a level I had not ever really experienced before, but I had more, I had a long ways to go uh, and more relief to experience. But that's, that's what always stands out for me when I get questions like this, so that's what I'm relating to you. Tyler Simmons. L. Ron Hubbard said there is an implant station on Mercury and Venus. Mercury and Venus are too hot to sustain any life. Do Scientologists know that these planets can't possibly have an inhabitant on them? No, they don't know that because L. Ron Hubbard said that there are implant stations on Mars and, Ver and on uh, Venus and therefore there are implant stations on uh, Mars and Venus and Mercury, I guess you said. I don't remember Mercury being a place where there were implant stations, but you know, whatever. Of, co of course Hubbard could have said that. The way Scientologists reconcile this is that they believe either that those implant stations are automated. I'm, I know there was one place where Hubbard mentioned that. Or the life forms that exist there exist because of technology that far surpasses any technology we have here on Earth. For example, Hubbard references electronic fields or types of electricity that we have not even discovered here on Earth yet or types of energy flows. And he could just rattle this stuff off and throw it out there and people would go, oh, okay. You know, anything to believe it, right? I mean, if you want to believe that there are implant stations on Mars, then you can make that, you can, you know, work that around to make that make sense to you. Uh, and that's what you can, that's, that's how people are. So that's, um, that's about as much thought, actually. Everything I just told you, that's about as much thought as Scientologists put into it. Julian Kirkpatrick. Today's headlines show Tom Cruise and the Mission Impossible 7 team leaving Italy over coronavirus fears and concerns. Given Scientology teachings discuss immunity and mind over matter when it comes to disease, why is Tom Cruise, who is such a control freak, letting this interfere with his filming? Does he think people are so n-theta and he can't muster enough theta to offset all the sickness? Cute. Um, no, it's called an insurance company, and uh, Tom Cruise can have as many fits and, and complaints and jump up and down as often as he wants about it, but if the insurance company isn't going to cover your crew without costs becoming extremely prohibitive, then guess what? You move your location, and that is decided. Those kind of decisions are made by producers and by the studios more so than any one individual. And Tom Cruise, as powerful as he is, doesn't have the power to compel a Hollywood crew or any crew anywhere to be in harm's way, especially when the insurance company is saying otherwise. So, you know, I'm just giving a pretty real answer to, uh, you know, I get the silliness of the question. Uh, also, I just want to sort of throw this out as an opportunity right now since this is kind of a timely thing. Please, guys, don't get into the hysteria of what's going on with this coronavirus in the media. They, uh, and the political punditry around this is ridiculous on both sides. You know, it's not a hoax. And at the same time, the administration is, uh, you know, anyway, I've got criticisms, but it's not as bad as the people on the left are making it out to be as far as the response. I mean, we've got a problem, but let's not make this out that people are collapsing in the streets and everything's falling apart and it's the end of civilization as we know it, okay? And I'm seeing stuff like that. I'm seeing it on social media. I'm seeing it in the news and it's just irritating the shit out of me. <laughs> Sorry to be so blunt, but, you know, we really need to calm down on this, guys. It's not you know, it's not coming for you. You're not, you know, going to die tomorrow, okay? It's, it's, it's okay. 
It's a sickness, it's a disease, we need to deal with it at the correct uh, level of response, but we don't need to be hysterical about it in the, in the meantime. Okay, anyway, uh, there you go. Okay, guys, that's the end of our show. Thanks a lot for watching and listening to me ramble on here. I really do appreciate your viewership and support and uh, your kind words. You guys are just awesome. Um, if you're going to leave criticism for me, and it's totally fine if you do, I actually want it, but I just prefer that it not be insulting at the same time, I really fold up on that pretty fast. And I'm going to tell you that after seven years of being out of Scientology, my emotions now and my responses to things now are more open and honest and real than they ever have been. So, you know, I'm going to respond harshly when I get treated harshly by people on social media. And, you know, I, I think it's a tit-for-tat kind of thing, and I'm not shy about that. At the same time, though, I don't want to be mean, and I don't want to be vindictive, and I don't want to be irritated or irritable or annoyed or anything like that with people. I want to engage in good, honest conversation. And I want to engage in that level of ideas, not at the level of personalities and how, what an idiot I am or what a moron you are. I'd really rather not do that. So I just wanted to throw that out there because um, these are very divisive times and, and it's okay to have conflicts of ideas. It's okay to disagree. It's the civility of it and the, the conversation of it that really matters and the fact that we can come to compromise mm -hmm. that makes us so amazing uh, as human beings and, and what this is for. So I want to encourage uh, talk and discussion and commentary in that direction and at the same time admit that I am not perfect and if I lash out because I'm being, you know, uh, getting the... The short end of somebody's stick, then um, then that's what that's what's going to happen. But I, I I'd really rather that not happen, and I'm trying my best to to be better about that sort of thing. But I wanted to acknowledge it here in this last bit. Okay, guys, see you next week. Bye bye.